Good morning, everyone. I heard Andrew mention earlier the Super Bowl. Is everybody excited? Maybe not the Super Bowl. You may not be Atlanta or New England fans, but I'll tell you what you're excited for. The flag football game to be held later on out there. I'm not sure how many teams Shane is going to have out there, but I hear every year that blows the Super Bowl actually away is when you get everybody... And when we have our time of pastoral prayer later on in the service, we need to pray for everybody's safety and everybody, you know, because I hear it's a pretty intense game out there. Let's turn our attention to God's Word. Let me uh, open us in prayer and ask for the Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to be our teacher as we approach His Word this morning. Father, we do thank You. In fact, we praise You. Who is a God like you that you would actually be vulnerable enough to reveal yourself to us, to reveal not only uh, the plan of salvation, but to reveal your heart, to reveal your ways, to reveal your personality, that we may know you, be involved with you as you know us. So Lord, I pray that we would Listen and pay attention to your word this morning and hear what your spirit is saying to us, that we would hear individually and corporately, that you would open and illumine to us our minds and our hearts to see the wondrous things written of you in your law. So help us as we leave this place that we would know you better through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. The proclamation of scripture this morning is based on the text out of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 34. Hear the word of the Lord. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And friends, this is the word of God. Share a date with you, August 4th, 1987. You want to know what happened on August 4th, 1987? Evie and I got engaged. Now, you need to tell her I remember that date. 
That's a, she's not here, so you need to communicate with her. I still remember our engagement anniversary. And that's because that was a very exciting day for me. I hope it was for her. I think it was. But it was a very exciting. You want to know the very first thing that Evie and I did when we got engaged? The very first thing that we did after, of course, our private engagement that we had, it was to share the news with everybody, to make it public. Obviously, we started with our parents, but then we shared it with the church. We shared it with others. In other words, to tell the world that we were engaged. We wanted everyone to know. Now, I want you to think about something. In the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark tells us what his gospel is all about. And I keep going back to this verse, don't I? Because this is, in a sense, let me teach you a big phrase for a second. Okay, you're going to learn this phrase with me here for a second. It's called the hermeneutical key. You can say you learned something at church this morning. Now, in the world, you're looking at me and going, what in the world, Jeff, is the hermeneutical key? It is the key to interpretation. Okay, so we're going to unlock the door, and what is the key to interpretation? It comes out of Mark's opening verse when he says, here, in a sense, he's saying, here's what I'm writing about. Here's the hermeneutical key. Read everything, interpret everything in, in light of this. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he's telling you how to understand it. He's saying, what I'm leaving you is the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is, the Son of God. So everything we read, we have to kind of ask ourselves, what does it tell us about the gospel? One of the first things we come is when Jesus begins his public ministry, after his baptism, after his temptation, he's going out, and you have the words gospel again, so hermeneutical key, you're supposed to be kind of perking up when you do this. What does Jesus do? He begins his public ministry by saying he's going about proclaiming the gospel of God. Ah, alert readers should go, pay attention. And it says, the kingdom, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So in other words, Jesus is say, Mark is saying, my, God, my book is about the gospel, and Jesus is saying the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom, which means everything we read relates somehow back to the gospel of the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is announcing the gospel of the kingdom. Now, of course, immediately you go, if that's his hermeneutical key, and that's how you're reading it, you expect he's going to immediately begin to teach about the kingdom, right? Doing this, public announcement, Make it public to the world, much like Evie and I did with our engagement. But instead, you kind of get not much teaching directly about the kingdom of God until you reach here in chapter 4. And even now in chapter 4, Jesus is speaking in fairly cryptic language. He's using things like parables, stories, images. and He's talking about lamps and mustard seeds. Doesn't that sound a little weird to you? What in the world do lamps and mustard seeds have to do with the announcement of the message of the kingdom? Tim Keller makes the comment, he says, parables are such that parables and stories take digestion and reflection. And another commentator puts it, he says, even though the parables may have on the surface seemingly a very simple meaning... Jesus here isn't being deliberately opaque or di difficult. 
what he's doing is he's announcing the kingdom in parables because, now listen to this, this is what this commentator says, says his message is so explosive that this was the only way he could see it. See, Jesus is not saying he wants to keep it secret. In fact, what is the first parable he used? He says, do you buy yourself a lamp? Do you go to Ikea, find your favorite lamp, modern style, all this, and then go, let's bring it home and hide it under the bed. He goes, I'm not trying to hide the message of the kingdom under a basket or under a bed. But, it, but the message of the kingdom is so dynamite, and I say dynamite because when Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, later on in Romans chapter 1, the Greek word for power is the word dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. So I'm not making this up when I say the message of the gospel of the kingdom is so explosive that this is the only way for Jesus to get it across. But of course, what is he saying to us here? He's saying, are you hearing it? What does he say in verse 23? If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he says to them much more directly and much more pointedly, pay attention to what you hear. In other words, that's a command. It's a command to be attentive, to meditate on it, to reflect on it, to digest it, to pay attention, to again, as James says, to be a doer, not just a hearer of the word. So are you paying attention to the word? Are you paying attention? Are you hearing the kingdom message? What do we hear about the kingdom message in this particular text? This kind of string of stories and parables that Jesus is going about telling. We learn two things. We learn, first of all, the strangeness of the kingdom. And we learn, second of all, the promise of the kingdom. The strangeness and the promise of the kingdom of God. Because remember the hermeneutical key. Mark is narrating the teaching of Jesus here, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus says the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. So this is a kingdom message, a kingdom announcement. Let's explore this a little bit. Tim Keller asks the question, he says, why didn't Jesus just define the kingdom in a single sentence? Wouldn't that be easier? Don't you want just simple black and white, right on the surface, the kingdom of God is... And he goes and he quotes the writer, Flannery O'Connor. And apparently Flannery O'Connor was asked by someone, could you just put the meaning of that story in a sentence? Just sum it up in a nutshell. Tell me in one sentence what it is. And she responded, if I could put the story in a sentence, I wouldn't have had to write the whole story. Dr. Keller makes the point that what she is saying is you can't tuck the biggest things in life, the most important things, the most Remember Romans 1, the most dunamis things, the most dynamite things, the most explosive things you can't tuck in a single sentence. So Jesus goes on and he says, the kingdom of God is like a lamp or like scattered seed or it's like a mustard seed, this tiniest of all seeds. He uses these images, these stories, these metaphors, these likenesses that to the everyday hearer of the first century world would be extremely common. It'd be like if Jesus showed up in the 21st century and he spoke about the Super Bowl. We'd know what he's talking about. 
I think so. We, would you know? Nod your head yes if you know what the Super Bowl is, even if you're not watching it today, which always reminds me, they talk about how many millions of people will watch the Super Bowl, and it's like one-third of all Americans. I really want to know what the other two-thirds are doing someday. Because it seems to me everybody I know is watching the Super Bowl. But what is Jesus doing here? He is speaking, when we think that we get to the meaning of the parable, on the surface, Jesus is saying, look deeper, digest it, reflect on it. Think about what I'm saying. Again, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are you paying attention? And to an Old Testament, or to somebody in the first century, they would have heard, and they would have immediately heard, some of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament that Jesus was maybe not quoting, maybe not giving a kind of a one-to-one exact correspondence, but certainly alluding to. There are echoes of it, so to speak, in his teaching here. So, for example, Ezekiel chapter 17 says, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird." In the shade of its branches, bird of every, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. Now, is Jesus in the parable of the mustard seed quoting from this exactly? No. But if you were a first century reader, first century hearer of this, you would go, okay, the prophet Ezekiel is talking about God planting a tree And he's talking about that tree growing into a large cedar, so a small sprig, a small twig, growing into something large enough that under it will dwell every kind of bird. Your mind will at least go, sounds familiar. I've read this somewhere before. I'm somewhat familiar. Or how about Daniel chapter 4? Daniel chapter 4 Daniel is interpreting the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is sharing his dream with Daniel. And he says, The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. And its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Now, is Jesus' teaching basically saying, you know, I've come and somehow relate to King Nebuchadnezzar? No, but he's using images, he's using metaphors, he's using stories, he's using likenesses that they would be very familiar with. He's taking an image and applying it to the message of the kingdom. Again, what is he saying? If anyone has ears to hear. So what is he saying? What is he teaching here? 
Jesus is saying that there was an image that the Old Testament prophets, prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel, used, and it was the image of a tree, a great tree, a great world tree, one that would start small like a seed, get it in the parable, and would grow very large. And this tree would kind of be a connector between heaven and earth. Let me read the Daniel passage again out of Daniel 4. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. Jesus is saying, he wants people to know that illusion. It somehow started from the earth and reached heaven. This great world tree connected heaven and earth. Tim Keller calls it the spine of the universe. And Jesus is saying, I have come to bring this great world tree, this connector of heaven and earth. I've come to bring this. This is the image he uses for the kingdom. He says, I've come to bring the good news of the kingdom. I have come to bring the tree, the ladder, the stair, that which connects heaven and earth. I have come to bring heaven and the life of heaven to earth. Now let me press this a little bit further. Think about this. We're talking about the message of the kingdom here. When God created the world, what was his purpose in creating it? He wanted it to be a home, a temple, if you would, for himself. He wanted him and mankind to live together. That's why when you get to Revelation 21 and you see the end of history, how the world's going to end, one of the key phrases there is when it says, finally, now, at last, the dwelling of God is with man. What is that? That's the consummation of the original purpose in creation. For the presence, the glory, the bigness, the hugeness, the intimacy, the communion. For God and mankind to live together so that we would enjoy his glory presence. Live in partnership with him. Live in fellowship with him. Live in worship of him. But of course we know the next part of the story, don't we? The fall of Adam and Eve the sin of man, the rebellion of man. And as a result, the world is broken because of sin. There's disaster and disease. There's brokenness, upsetment, betrayal. There's injustice. There is, as one author and one writer puts it, he says, sin is not about the breaking of the rules. Sin is about the violation, the disruption of shalom. God created the world to be the place. God and man together was meant to be shalom, wholeness. Heaven and earth, the life of heaven, the perfection of heaven, and the life of earth were meant to be united. And sin disunited, alienated, disjointed them. And in the plan of redemption, in the revelation of God, what's going on here is that the Old Testament prophets were able to foresee a day in which God would, and they put it in an image, where God would plant a tree. That someday God would bring heaven, the life of heaven, to earth. Think about what the incarnation and Jesus is coming to. Jesus is bringing in his own person, in God become flesh, he's bringing heaven to earth. And Tim Keller comments on this. He says, this world as it is is not our home. But the kingdom of God 
is the reintroduction of God's presence into this world to turn this world into the home our hearts most desperately want and long for. In other words, Jesus, in these kind of strange images, is basically saying the message of the kingdom is God will one day put everything right. Think about your broken dreams. Think about your shattered dreams. Think about your affliction. Think about your suffering. Think about what's wrong in us, in our communities, in the world. And then think about the promise that God will one day put it all right. And the prophets foresaw, and Jesus is saying it's happening in his career, in his work, in his life, in his ministry. It happens through heaven coming to earth. Not through us somehow trying to measure up, be good enough, perform well enough, work our tails off, work our fingers to the bone. That is anathema to the gospel. The gospel is all about God coming down. God coming to us. God rescuing us. And Jesus is saying, I've begun that. I've inaugurated that. And see, and here's the strange part. Remember I said I titled this The Strangeness of the Kingdom. He's saying, I'm not doing this in the way that you would expect. Look at the parables. Look at these three stories he tells. The first one, a story about a lamp and what the purpose of a lamp is. What Jesus is saying is, I may be speaking to you now kind of in secret, a lamp under a bed, lamp under a basket, but soon... The message is going to become public knowledge. It's going to completely get out. This kingdom message will become public knowledge soon enough. Commentators talk about the shadow of the cross always falling along the pages of Mark. Then he tells a parable about a seed being scattered and growing secretly, unobserved. You know, if you listen to the language of the parable, the man scatters a seed. What does he do? He lives his day and night routine, he get, goes to bed, he gets up, he rises, he does his thing, basically saying, and the seed's doing its thing under the earth, unobserved, nobody knows. And then he says, but then you've got the blade, you've got the ear, you've got the full grain in the ear, and then he says, when it's ripe, then comes the harvest. And again, reflect on this. Do you know what Jesus is doing here? He's alluding to the Old Testament once again. In fact, you'll never understand the New Testament if you are not immersed in the Old Testament to know what Jesus is alluding to here, because here he's alluding to the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 3, verse 13. When he prophesies, put in the sickle, for the harvest is right. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. What is Joel prophesying? The great and mighty and fearful and dreadful day of the Lord. And Jesus is using this image, this story, this parable to say, yes, the day of the Lord is real. The day of the Lord is coming. But it won't look like what you expect it to look like. It won't look like to the Israelites, we're going to march in on the army. We're going to conquer Rome. We're going to create a new empire. That's not what it will look like. The strangeness of the kingdom. That's why he says, do you have ears to hear? Are you paying attention? What's the practical message here? 
when he talks about seeds scattered on the ground and a mustard seed, the small, one of the challenges of this passage, commentators and scholars remind us, is don't despise small and ordinary beginnings. Just because there isn't full renewal now, just because we don't experience perfect shalom now, perfect well-being now, just because there isn't complete healing now, doesn't mean the kingdom of God hasn't already been inaugurated. As a matter of fact, part of the challenge of this particular message, part of the practical application of these parables is, do you despise God's small beginnings? Just because God hasn't healed the whole world doesn't mean God's not at work. Do you have ears to hear? Do you see God's fresh work, even if it doesn't look exactly like you want or expect it to look? Now, before I move on to the next point, let me just share a couple of other practical implications as to why this is important. And this comes from all sorts of commentators, Tim Keller and several others who talk about the fact that one of the key things we realize here, and again, this is part of our hermeneutical key, if Jesus is, Mark is narrating the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Jesus says the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom, one of the things we have to remember is salvation is about a kingdom. That salvation is about a kingdom. And commentators point out and remind us that knowing God's salvation is a kingdom salvation means that God's salvation is not just about you. It's about the world. Listen to how Paul puts it. Reflecting on what God is doing right now in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, through Jesus, so in Jesus, God in the flesh, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. In other words, salvation is about God reconciling and renewing and restoring all things, which obviously doesn't mean every individual, but it does mean all things. He's restoring creation. He's reconciling the world. And Tim Keller points out that what this means practically for us is a new organizing principle of life. He illustrates it this way. It's kind of like after the Super Bowl. What are the football teams immediately going to do? Actually, starting tomorrow morning, you got two teams that are in the Super Bowl. One will win. They'll celebrate. What will the other 30-some-odd teams do? They're going to start preparing for next season. And they'll start immediately. Some of them will hire new coaches, new general managers. And what will these new coaches and new general managers bring? A new organizing principle for how to approach the upcoming season. They'll say instead of a 3-4 defense, we need a 4-3 defense. Instead of a great running game, we need a great passing game. These are, they're going to start a new strategy, a new organizing principle for how to administrate the kingdom of their team. And Tim Keller talks about Jesus here is teaching about a new organizing principle for how to approach life. And he communicates it in this very cryptic saying in verse 24 when he says, pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use, 
it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Dr. Keller puts it like this. He says, the people who give the most have the most. And the more you give, the more you will have. For the way to fullness is to empty yourself. And I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, the principle of life is always that the way up is down. Think about that in every arena of life. Paul in Philippians 2 talks about relationships, and what does he say? He says, consider not only your interests, but the interests of others. Put the interests of others, what they're thinking, what they want, empathize. Paul writes in Colossians, put on then as God's chosen, as God's holy and beloved, put on like where compassion and kindness, tenderheartedness, humility. In other words, the way up is down. You want to approach relationships like this? Basically, what does he say? With the measure you use, the more you give, the more you will receive. With the measure you use, still more will be added to you. The way you handle money, the way you handle relationships, the way you handle life. A writer on the Gospels by the name of Richard Hayes puts it this way. He says, in the Gospel of Mark, God has reversed. This is the strangeness of the kingdom. God has reversed the position of insiders and outsiders. Those in positions of authority and privilege generally, not always, but generally, reject Jesus and his message. But people of lower, despised positions in the world of first century culture receive the Gospel gladly. So he says, you have the leper in chapter 1. You have women in chapters 5 and 7, little children in chapter 10. The Gentile, the poor, the blind, all show faithful response to Jesus while the respectable, the scribes, the Pharisees, the authority figures do not. He says we should not underestimate the shock of this reversal and inversion to the first readers. The kingdom of God does not come in the way you would expect it. It is always radical. Which leads us to our second point, and the most radical part of the kingdom, the promise of the kingdom. We said earlier that God had planted and given us images of a great tree, of kind of a connector between heaven and earth. And in Genesis 28, you have a connector between heaven and earth. In Genesis 28, Jacob is traveling, and he has a dream. And in his dream, it says, Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking with Nathanael. And he answers Nathanael, he says, well, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He says, Nathanael, you're going to see even greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is Jesus saying to Nathanael there? He's saying he is the ladder, he is the stair, he is the tree, he is the connector between heaven and earth. 
And when Jesus went to the cross, what did he do? Remember I quoted Spurgeon saying, the way up is down, and on the cross, Jesus went all the way down. He became that little seed. He became the tiniest of the tiniest, the smallest of the smallest. He completely, what does Paul say in Philippians 2? He completely emptied himself. Voluntarily. Nobody took it from him. John 10 says he emptied himself of all this. He went as low. You want to talk an approach to life? On the cross, he went all the way down so that he could rescue you, save you, and bring you up. And why did he do that? He did that so that, because again, in the parable of the mustard seed, look at the end of the image. Eventually, the tree, Jesus, and us in Jesus becomes so big that what happens? The birds of the air can find shelter, can make nests, can find shade in it. In other words, Jesus' rescue of us, Jesus' salvation of us is always so that through us, it's for the sake of the nations. It's for the sake of others. Very interesting. John chapter 15. And I know I'm quoting a lot of scripture. There's a lot of scripture interpreting scripture here. John chapter 15. Jesus is teaching his disciples in the upper room. And he uses the image of a tree again, but he puts it in a different little language when he, when he says, I am the vine. And you are the branches. In other words, you're connected to the vine. So Jesus becomes the mustard seed who's the great tree, the vine, and we're connected to him. And then he gives this promise, the promise of the kingdom. Whoever abides in me and I in him. Think about what the word abide means. It means to stay, to remain, to be united to, to be connected to. It says, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, apart from the vine, separate. You can believe all the right things. If you're separated from the vine, you can do nothing. But the promise of the kingdom is that he is the tree or the vine, and we are connected to the ultimate connector. And the purpose, the promise of that, he connects us to him so that we're rescued and saved for the sake of, so that the birds of the air, in that first century context, the Gentiles... Others, for us, it's our families and our neighborhoods and it's our communities can find shelter, can find rest, can find blessing. The birds of the air come and make their nests in the tree. Salvation comes to us so that through us it may come to the world. So let me ask you this question. How does this parable send us out? into the world. We're connect. He's the vine, we're the branches. The promise is you will bear much fruit. And the salvation is always the salvation of a kingdom. That bearing fruit and mission is not just evangelism. It's not just missions. It includes that, of course. But includes things like the church being the safest place on earth that people from the outside can come in and find rest. The church being a place of shelter and shade, where people can hear the message, where we bear witness and embody the good news of the kingdom of God. Do we abide with Jesus, who is the tree, 
who's that mustard seed, who became the tree, who became the vine. Are you abiding with Jesus? See, are you paying attention to the word so that you abide with Jesus with a view of bearing fruit? Bearing fruit of embodying the gospel to your neighbors, embodying the good news of grace and compassion and truth and goodness and beauty. Are you embodying the message so that the kingdom announcement is being made through your life and through your witness? What a picture of the kingdom you've got. A mustard seed. And this doesn't, we're not talking change the world type thing. We're talking the tiniest of seeds growing into a tree that the birds of the air come and make their nests. Wouldn't it be something if we had a vision that the birds of the air, the people of Port Orange and New Smyrna and this county could come and find shelter and find shade and find safety within this community. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this text and for this narrative teaching us about the kingdom. Lord, I pray that now as we come and you give us more food, this means of grace that we would take and eat, we would remember your gospel, we would remember heaven coming down to earth, and we would feast on you. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.